Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Mimi Martin. We're at the Wine and Spirit Archive in Portland. It's February 3rd, 2022. Mimi, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question, the biggest question, is why wine? Um, I always wish that I had a better answer to this story, be- this question, because I feel like so many people have one wine that set them on that path. Um, and that's not the case for me, but maybe fittingly, I fell in love with wine in a wine class. I was a graduate student at NYU in the food studies program and selecting courses for the next semester. And there was a wine class that just happened to fit really nicely in my schedule. I liked the time of day it was offered and the day of the week. And I thought, why not? But I hadn't really thought about wine that much until then. I mean, I like to drink it a little bit, but my friends were non-drinkers at the time, so it really wasn't the way I was thinking about food. And I got into the course, and uh, it was taught by Linda Lowry, who was the director at the International Wine Center, and that was, I believe at the time, the maybe not at that time, the only provider of WSET, but one of few and definitely first. Mm-hmm. And the course she taught was modeled on WSET level two. So I got into the course, and um, started learning about wine. And I loved maybe how practical it was compared to what I was doing in food studies. Um, Food studies is an interdisciplinary look at food. It was the first food studies program um, in the country. And so very much like wine studies at Linfield, looking at food from the humanities perspective, hard sciences too, but more social sciences. And so I loved that when we learned about a history of a wine region, you could taste that history in the glass. Or when you learned about the different soil types, you could taste those distinctions in the glass. And that I think that um, that practical, tactile aspect of wine really appealed to me. So let's talk about how you ended up at NYU in the first place. Tell us about kind of life before wine. Uh, where did you grow up and, and why did you, what, kind of the path through into college? Um, well, I'll mention that I'm originally from Oregon. I grew up in the Willamette Valley, and I lived in the southern Willamette Valley until I was 11 and moved to Alaska. Came back for college at the University of Oregon for a couple of years before transferring to a school in Florida. Um, and I, after college, I moved to New York and was trying to figure out what to do. And the thing I knew I loved was food. So I went to culinary school and started cooking in restaurants in New York. And I realized that I loved food, but I hated New York restaurants. It was a horrible, horrible work environment. And of all, when I look back at all my jobs, the one thing I've been really good at is having really amazing jobs that I love doing. And I didn't, I didn't like being in restaurants. So I thought, what else can I do with this? And um, my roommate at the time was in a program at NYU called Performance Studies. And she was t- taking a course called Food and Performance. And she snuck me into a class with this woman, Linda Bardashak, who uh, studies the physiology of taste and the way that we taste. And I just thought, wow, I didn't know I could think about food in this way. And I learned then that there was a new program launching at NYU called Food Studies. And I thought, well, that's exactly what I want to do. Um, so I got into that program and then was lucky enough to get a teaching fellowship. And then from there, just kind of never left and kept marching through a progression of jobs there until by the time I left, I was my position was director of the undergraduate food studies and food management program. So I, as I was there, I was advising students, teaching graduate and undergraduate courses. Um, I managed the teaching facility, the kitchen, the actual physical kitchen and events. And um, yeah, I loved, I loved that job. I kind of, I can't believe that I left it in some ways because it was, such a wonderful job, but I left it for something else that turned out to be a wonderful job as well. 
But before we get on to that, tell me about that, the progression of it. You mentioned it being kind of a one-of-a-kind program. Uh, tell me about, as you were there, how it evol evolved and progressed, and are there, are there parts of it that you look back on fondly or proudly as, as being a part of? Um, yeah, the, the program definitely transitioned in the time I was there. I think because they were the first to develop a program, there was really a moment of trying to figure out, well, what is this going to be and what are the students going to do when they get out? That was a really big concern I remember them having. So um, I was one of the, among the first students, so I had to take an accounting class as part of a food studies program, which actually maybe turned out to be one of the most useful classes I took, even though I just thought it was ridiculous to have to take it. Um, I think there was a confidence that grew as the program evolved to realize it could just be what it is, which is just an academic study of food. And the people that went into that program were ultimately able to get um, positions without kind of being spoon-fed like practical skills. There was an idea that maybe we need like very tactile practical skills, and it was allowed to ultimately become something that was just more academic in its approach. Um, in terms of things that I'm proud of, it was exciting to be a part of a program that was growing. Mm -hmm. And I had um, a department chair at the time, some people would know Marion Nessel. She became a really big force in the food studies movement and particularly in the political aspects of food. And she was a wonderful department chair in that she, we would always say she gives you enough rope to let you hang yourself. Like she was just like, if you've got an idea, go for it. So that was an exciting place to be in that you could try stuff out. So. When I was there, I got to start a CSA. One concern we had was that students were learning about food, but being in New York City, we didn't have access to farms in the same way if we were more of an agricultural school. So partnering with a farmer to bring that to the department, um, supporting students in developing um, their own student club um, are probably some things that stick out as, and just developing new courses as well. What was the role of wine as part of that program? Did it, did it, was it a big part? Did it grow as well? Or was it still a fairly, fairly small part of the program? It was really small. And I'm not even sure the history of how that, that wine class ended up being there. Um, we had a continuing education program. And, and maybe it grew out of that. It was, honestly, that particular course was more successful with the business students. and it, um, which is why it had to be offered in the morning, because there was a concern business students were going to take the class and then just get drunk. So that's why it was offered at that really perfect time of day. Um, and I do actually wonder if that course is still there. When I was just about to leave, we were trying to transition it into something that aligned a little, excuse me, aligned a little bit more with the food studies mentality, because it really was kind of a standard wine class um, at the time. So. Um, I don't know what happened to that course, but I'm glad it was there when I was there. You mentioned being surprised that you left that position. So what caused you to leave that position? Um, my husband, Adam, and I, we started the school together, and we always knew that we wanted to move to Oregon. I just always had this connection, and he had very close friends here. And so that was always in our mind. At some point, we're going to move to the West Coast. And we, at the time, just, we loved having people over. We loved entertaining. And we just thought, what if we could do this for our life? So we would have this small space, and it would be intimate, and we would have people come, and we would prepare simple but delicious food and serve wine. And the cocktail scene was just kind of hitting at that time. And we very much loved cocktails. And so that was just kind of a fantasy we had. What if we could do that? And at that time, we'd both been studying wine together more formally. And we were teaching wine classes for our friends, like trying to find as many friends as we could have over to do wine classes. And we just loved doing it and thought, maybe we could just do that for a living. And I loved my job, but he um, was an attorney. And I think just a little bit tired. I wanted to do something different. Mm -hmm. And so we just decided to take a leap and do it. Um, and yeah, packed up and you know tried to find a place out here to where we could start that bar and space and also a classroom. Before we get
Before we get to that, I want to back up for a second. You mentioned for, more formal wine education that you were taking. Tell me about the process of that for you. Uh, formal wine education, what was it about wine that you found as you were learning about it? What, what was it that was appealing to you? Why, why did you pursue formal education? What, what kept you going through the educational path? I just have to be in school constantly. So <laughs> once I found out there was like more classes I could take, that's just what I like to do. So um, I thought, yes, please, let's sign me up for that. So Adam and I ended up um, signing up for classes through the International Wine Center. Mm -hmm. So again, working with Linda Lowry there. And uh, we did that training together and then just a lot of studying at home as well. So kind of both studying at home and then that formal training. And that kind of felt like the option at the time. Um, there didn't feel like there were as many wine classes as there are now. So it's like, we're going to go through WSET and then we'll just keep learning at home. Mm -hmm. And that's the way that, that we did that. So when you were getting ready to make the leap and come out here, what did you envision the project being? What, what, was, what was it going to look like and, and what did it end up looking like when yeah. you did it? Yeah, I, we thought it was going to be a bar a couple nights a week and then um, we would have classes a couple days a week. But it was going to be, and we settled on the name The Archive because after I finished my master's in food studies and I needed more classes to take, I decided I would um, get a master's in library and information science and archive management. So. I thought, and I just had completed that, and I thought, what a waste. Now I'm going to own a bar. Let's call the bar the Archive. It seemed like a great name for a bar. And then it was going to be the Archive like Bar and Education Center type of a thing. And I was, um, and I told, and so you know, I was a student of Linda Lowry's, and then we worked together at NYU, and her course ended up being under um, my purview is one of the courses that I was over overseeing and I told her what we were planning to do and she said okay come talk to me because I want you to teach WSET classes in the Pacific Northwest and so now we had this new part of the, what we were planning to do it was going to be a bar wine classes like we would done for our friends but then have this formal certification program people could do as well we came out even before we moved and we tried to find the perfect space for this bar and we ended up signing um, a pre-lease on a space and I've since learned like a pre-lease isn't really a thing, <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. But we were very excited about, there was an arts organization that was going to be opening up and they needed a bar that was under their umbrella. So we thought that that would be perfect. And so we got out here and we kept waiting for them to get their ducks in a row. And until then, we started offering wine classes. Um, so we taught in several spaces, recreational classes like we'd done for our friends. And then we started launching the WSET classes, but all without a physical space. Mm -hmm. And I think as we started doing that, we realized that that really was what we wanted to do. And that's what we love doing. Um, my husband had done um, some teaching at the university level as well. So it felt like a nice fit. and. Um, a few years later, I realized that I, as somebody who likes to go to bed at like nine o'clock at night, probably a bar would have had a very short lifespan for me anyway. So um, yeah, we started with the classes and um, they, they kept building and building and building and eventually the bar just fell by the wayside and the focus just became on the school, but with a very cumbersome name. <laughs> Obviously, uh, you're coming from New York, and, and that kind of scene, food and wine scene, to here is a very different thing. I'm, I'm curious, were people, what, what was the level people were were at here, and were were they ready for what you were bringing? Yeah, I think. I mean, I'll just say one thing that really. I remember we, when we first came out here to look for a space. Um, we got our plane landed at nine o'clock, or maybe even like eight thirty, and I thought, well, let's land, and then we'll get our stuff, and then we'll go out to eat, and. Um, just driving around at nine o'clock at night and all of the restaurants were closed. So that was kind of, that was like one thing that was, was happening here and it's not that way now, but it was, that was culturally kind of a big shift. Um, I think um, in terms of, hmm, let me think. I th 
I can't quite remember the question now. Was it how the class is received or? Yeah. Were, were, we, were people ready for what you, yes. what you were offering? Okay. So it was, you know, it was a slow build. So people hadn't heard of WSCT when we got out here. So, uh, and we didn't launch a huge campaign to introduce it. It built a little bit more slowly. When we came out and we kind of got our ducks in a row and were ready to start the school, we wrote up press releases and thankfully or the Oregonian picked it up and we got this tiny little blurb like on the side of the food section and it filled our first class. So that was our, I think we had like one three series recreational class and we had one WSET, what's now the level two course, and that kind of got our registration going for that first offering. And then honestly after that it's just been kind of word of mouth and people taking it and moving on to the next level or people taking it and having a good experience and telling a coworker or a friend. Um, and then things just kind of built naturally and somewhat slowly after that. Our second level two course, we had three people. Luckily, I'm glad we went with it. One of the students, um, Cheryl Walkerhauser, fixed patisserie, turned out to be like one of the best educators we have. She teaches an amazing wine class. So um, thank God for that tiny little three-person class. <laughs> but then after that, it just, um, it just grew and we offered classes as we could and it kind of has steadily built over the years. Um, so people learned about WSET slowly, and I think about maybe a year in, or maybe within that first year, we also put on a careers and wine symposium, and that was modeled on a program that we had done at NYU in the food studies program, which was a day of panels. My memory is that Adam and I probably moderated those panels, and we would have, I think, six or seven different areas of the profession, like distribution, um, you know, restaurants, uh, different areas of the industry, and that really allowed us to meet a lot of people in the industry and brought in a ton of people. I think we probably had close to 100 people that attended that event, and so that was kind of a nice kickoff as well. Um, but other than that, it's been gradual, and you know, every year I think people understand a little bit more what WSET is, and um, people seem to be more open to certification classes, or there's just more people that are looking for that. You know, I think one of the things that's so special about Oregon is it's such, um, the wine industry is kind of a bit of a, a bootstrap industry where there's a lot of mentorship that happens, and that's how most people go up. So I think, and I, and I don't think people have to go through a certification program to get into the industry, but that's how people were going up. And it's, um, it's built a little bit more slowly that people start to think of a, a formal wine education experience as a way that they can further their skills. Tell me about the, the teaching component. Obviously, not, it wasn't new to you, but tell me about designing curriculums and, and the, the kinds of things that go into setting these classes up. Obviously, WSET plays a role in that, but how did you sort of find the sweet spot for how you wanted to teach and how you wanted the class sessions to look? Um, I think one thing is I always, I really like an, an intimate sized class. So with very few exceptions, we have 16 people in a class, which is a really nice number of people to make sure that everybody feels seen and they are brought into that experience of tasting together and learning together. I think there's so much minutia to learn in wine, and so anytime I can tie what we're learning to what's actually in the glass, that's something I find really helpful. So if we're talking about a wine region, and we're talking about um, Chocoli in Spain, um, I don't like to teach the content and then taste the wine. I like to say, okay, this is the climate, this is where we're at, this is what the ocean's doing, this is the moisture level. Now taste this wine, how, do we how are we tasting that? And what's the acid, what's the body, what flavors are we getting? Um, and then these are the two different soil types. So you have like wine number two and wine number three are on the two different, and then we'll kind of break down, can we taste differences in them? Um, uh, 
you know, would then maybe get into the grape growing and the, you know, in that particular region, vines are trained high, get into the winemaking and that CO2. And then so keep kind of keep coming back to the glass and a different wine with each of the main concepts that I'm trying to explore. Um, I think too, another thing um, I really like to introduce to about wine are some bigger concepts that I find people really like to understand more than just like an individual grape or region. So you can talk about Merlot all day, but if you can link it to bigger picture things about um, different winemaking philosophies about are you building a food friendly wine or are you building something that tastes great on its own. Um, talking about things like quality. So um, if we have like um, a $5 bottle of, a, of wine from a certain grape variety and then a $50 bottle. Why do those th wines taste different? How can we break down those differences? Why are we paying 10 times as much? And then what does that look like in terms of what are people doing before it gets into the bottle? So I think always kind of bringing it back to kind of bigger, bigger picture things is something that I find it creates a little bit more of an aha moment for people than just like kind of clicking through this is the great, this is where it comes from. Um, WSET is more laid out and they have pretty clear ideas about how content should be created. Um, thankfully, um, I like the way that they lay things out, maybe just because I've taught it so much it makes sense to me. But I think um, maybe just with WSET, always doing those checks and making sure that you're bringing people along as you move through the material. You talked about the kind of the minutia of wine and, and all of the different angles from which you can explore it. Obviously, that's something you're familiar with and something Linfield is familiar with, with all the different kind of ways you can look at something. So when you're teaching it, are, do you find people receptive to that or do you find that to be overwhelming for people as, as they're kind of, or do they come in expecting that they're just gonna memorize regions and grapes and then you're giving them all this other stuff or are they excited to kind of follow you down the path of sociology and geology and all of those kinds of things? Yeah, it totally depends on the student and what level they come in. So I would never put that um, on students that are coming in to learn about wine for the first time. Um, I would kind of start with some, um, some kind of um, and easier entry points. And again, like I try to step away from minutia in those classes. So I like, give people things that they can hang, um, hang things on. Like I always think, I always try to put myself back into that position of that student that's coming into a first wine class and what that feels like and thinking about, so I always tell my students this example, like I drink coffee every day and my husband roasts coffee and I feel like I know good coffee but I went into a coffee shop a couple years ago and the barista, had, they had different origin coffees and I was asking for a recommendation and they said, um, well, what kind of coffee do you like? And I just, I mean, I know what origins I like, but I just, I, I didn't have any vocabulary. I never thought to put it into words. And so I try to remember that until we learn the vocabulary, the vocabulary is somewhat arbitrary. It's a language that we have to learn. And so I try to guide students through learning that vocabulary, while also reminding them that they shouldn't know it until they've learned it. Um, so giving them concepts like, you know, if you're at looking at that wall of wine in the grocery store, how do we know what it's gonna taste like and that we can think of, you know, what's the grape, where did it grow, and how is it made, those kind of big umbrella things. My, level three students and level four students, they know they're coming in to learn the minutia. And so for that, I'm trying to help them figure out how to organize it in a way so that they can keep that in their, in their heads. Uh, regarding the, the mission of, of, of your work, did, did, did the mission that you were, had in your head as you were getting started, is it still the mission you have today or has, has your mission evolved over the years? Oh, um, I would say maybe the initial mission was more maybe like a pleasure focus on wine and wine education. I think it has evolved to focus a little bit more on 
um, the students that are on more of a career path or just more um, a very intensive focus on wine study. And so that is a little different. Those students need a different kind of support. Um, there is a lot of vulnerability among those students. That's a kind of a scary thing to put yourself in that position, especially if you've been out of school for a while. So offering them that, um, that framework for how to master that level of content is really different than teaching that introductory level class. So I think I thought I'd kind of be doing more of this, and, but I find that I really enjoy working over here with these students. That's an exciting level, and it. Um, I like being with people when they are in that stage of growth. I think that's why I liked being at NYU so much. Um, it's such an exciting, and you can kind of um, live vicariously through through them, um, and the the steps and advances that they're that they're making. And I think um, I find that the higher level it goes, the more I find myself stepping into even like a role of a therapist a little bit and just reminding people it's going to be okay because it is it's a very those higher level certification classes bring a certain level of vulnerability with them and a, a possibility that you don't know as much as you're going to need in order to be successful and a willingness to to accept that and figure out what step you're going to take to get there for your own sort of the, the obviously to teach this you have to know it very well so, so tell me about the sort of continuing education that goes on for you and what how you stay how, how you keep all this information how, how you stay fresh on it and, and up to date on it I think yeah it's hard and wine is always changing so with every and I think pre-pandemic I was getting ready to teach level two for my hundredth time um, so I, with every um, level two or level three session I'm teaching, I'm always trying to find it's one new piece of information around the topic to bring a little bit of freshness to it. Um, I also, I, if when I can find a new wine certification program, I will do it. So I've um, gone through, you know, over the last few years, the Wine Scholar Guild's wine certification courses, and went ahead and became a certified wine educator through the Society of Wine Educators just because I love I love a certification program and it's nice to just nice opportunity to restudy and study from a different perspective. But I think that kind of decision to kind of go and find one new piece that kind of helped things stay fresh for me. With all the different kinds of wine education resources you yourself have been through, uh, do you find yourself kind of pulling pieces from them? Do you have favorite styles from, from the different kinds of ways you've been taught? Or do you find them all to be fairly similar in terms of uh, the way they educate? I love WSCT in that it's so predictable. And they're like, this is what you need to know. This is all you need to know. Just study this information. And it can be so dry. So one of the goals of the class is to kind of bring it to life a little bit. Um, but I love how clear it is to students what's needed. That feels very comfortable, I think. The Wine Scholar Guild courses, bringing those in, they bring so much story and history. So I love the energy of their materials. They also have done a great job with their online content, which I think is so good. Um, but those programs are a little harder to know where to put your energy. So those are kind of the strengths and weaknesses of, of both of those. And I think the Society of Wine Educators does a wonderful job with their programs. And they're a little bit more focused on the United States, which is kind of a nice, a nice change. Tell me about the, Obviously, the program has grown and evolved quite a bit to where it is now. Tell me about dealing with the past couple of years. Uh, tell me about the, the, the pandemic and, and everything and, and how you have adjusted and, and sort of gotten through and what things are looking like now uh, for you going forward. Um, yes, yeah, so we are sitting in the new location of the Wine and Spirit Archive, and this is a building that, that we bought um, and closed on about three days before the governor said everything shuts down. My students were sitting in class with me when the message came up <laughs> on the phone that everything was closing. So we'd offered two classes here before we shut down. 
and um, the step number one was just helping everyone who was already enrolled in something get finished. So that was moving everything online. Students came to pick up their wine and mini growlers and we would meet online and it was just a really, for me at least, a wonderful way to stay connected with humans during that time. I was very anti-online wine education until the pandemic and I just love it, love it now. Um, I love seeing people's pets and their kids running on the screen. It feels very intimate in a way that I didn't think it would. Um, so that was step one. And then just trying to figure out how to deliver wine classes to people in a way, once we got through kind of getting through people that needed to get done, how can we kind of engage with people in a time when people need engagement? And that has, um, that created a lot of really wonderful online wine experiences. And I have a group of students that started with me on Fridays, I think in March or April, the pandemic started. So just right after. And I see them most Friday nights now. And it's just become this very tight group of people that get together and drink wine. And we focus on, you know, uh, whatever. So that's what all the wine around us right now is for my Friday night wine group. And we're going to do six weeks on Italy. Um, and then that was also that little break gave me the time to finally get everything in order to offer diploma. So WSET level four diploma is um, the benchmark course for WSET. It is a beast administratively and it's a beast for the students, but students have been asking for it for 16 years and I finally thought, okay, I can do this now. I have time to, to figure out how to make this work. Um, and so that started the March after the second March of the pandemic. We started online. Then we thought we were going to be in person. We held class outside in person. And then, you know, every, every, it seems like every time we meet, it's kind of a different story about what feels safe to do. But those, that first crop of students are midway through their diploma experience now. And now that I'm doing that, now we're moving to a stage where there's um, a bunch of new educators coming on board. And so probably like a big growth phase for the school in that um, people are ready to come back for wine class and there's just more opportunities for other people to be on board. So yeah, I feel like we're kind of in the teenage years of that transition, but um, marching towards, towards that expansion. And that seems to be based on enrollments this month as we're starting to kind of gear back up full swing, seems like people are ready to be back in person, so. You mentioned a six-week course on Italy. I know Italy yeah. is a specialty of yours. Uh, tell me about, we, we've heard often that Italy is the hardest, the hardest country to, to master from a wine perspective, edu educational wine perspective. I'm curious, uh, has that been your experience as well? And what, why Italy? What, what caused you to kind of specialize on Italian wine? Um, yeah, I think, well, I think like most wine people end their studies in Italy because you, once you get into Italy, either you can't get out because you never will really kind of fully understand it. But um, yeah, Italy's just fascinating. It's really fun to teach because it's so hard. Um, and I like to try to help people kind of make sense of what seems, I'm very logical and so I'm always trying to kind of box up Italy. I think I like that it resists me a little bit and insists on being um, unwilling to, to fit into no, like a neat filing system. Um, so yeah, I think when I'm just, when I want to drink wine, I often think of Italy and Sangiovese is one, well, it's not my, it's one of my favorite grapes. We could say maybe it's my favorite grape. Um, so yeah, I think it's that, I think that it, I feel challenged by Italy and that's why I go back there. I still don't feel like I've completely figured out how to tie a bow on it. And so it continues to just be exciting to me. One of the, one, many of our interviews, we've, we've heard about you. You're, you're, a, you're a name that comes up in a lot of our interviews. A lot of people we've talked to in, in the Portland wine area have, have spoken highly of, of learning wine through you. And, and I'm curious, having the years of, of mentorship and, and leadership and, and that you've had, um, how does it feel to be that in that kind of role of having educated this number of people and, and having brought wine education to the to the to the, so many people who are now doing successful things on their own? 
I'm just, I feel lucky to have met those people and I'm, I'm inspired by my students all the time and I can't, sometimes when the people that show up in class, I'm like, why, what are you doing here? What could I possibly have to tell you and share with you about wine? Um, I think sometimes I'm honestly kind of surprised how many people have come through the classes because I tend to be, if you want to see me, you have to come to the classroom or like my backyard or like Mount Hood or something like that. Like I don't, I don't get out in the wine scene a lot. So when I do, I'm just kind of like, oh wow, oh you. Like I, and I hear, I, I love hearing stories about people meeting each other. Like, you know, going to Soder and just like, I met so-and-so and they said that they took a class. I was telling them I was taking this wine class and they said that they took it with you. And um, so I like, I like thinking about them all kind of bumping out there, bumping up against each other and seeing each other, even while I'm just kind of stuck here, like putting wine in boxes for my Friday night wine tastings. Obviously, you're not focused purely on, on Oregon, but, but being here in Oregon, I, I, you, I'm sure you have a, a perspective of the industry. So I'm curious about when you came back to Oregon, what, what, the, what your kind of initial impressions of the Oregon wine industry were and, and Oregon wines were at, at the time you came back. Um, I thought, gosh, these wines are expensive. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think what really... I think is what really struck me about the wine industry and still today was just how supportive everybody is of each other and how much people are trying to lift up what other people are doing, how willing people are to share. You see a lot of wine regions where people are like, we should work together and market our wines together, we'll be more effective. There's like a business end and it makes sense. There's something in Oregon where it's like people seem that they just want to support growth of other people just for the nature of supporting the growth of other people. I don't think that that is um, super common or not to the extent we see it in Oregon. And I think probably that was laid by the, the founders of the Oregon wine industry and their desire to work and collaborate together. But I think it's why Oregon wine got so good so fast because I always think, what a challenging craft you get to do it once a year. And then you think, oh, I messed that up. I'll try it again next year. But if you can share that knowledge, you just raise exponentially. And I think, I just think that's pretty incredible thing about Oregon. And I just, you taste that in the energy of the Willamette Valley. I think that's really special. Are there changes you've seen in the industry since you've been here? And, and, and what does the industry look like now, maybe, compared to when you first got back here? Yeah, very different. Um, the urban wineries, I think, is kind of an exciting thing. It's just a way for newer people to get in uh, because it's, you know, that kind of romantic, traditional idea where you kind of buy a pot of land and you plant your vines and make wine. That's just not within reach for a lot of people. Um, especially now as land's gotten more expensive. So, you know, maybe outside of the Willamette Valley, but I think that new way of thinking about how to make and sell wine and being in the city or to do that down um, in the Willamette Valley or in other parts of Oregon. So that's been, a, I think, a, kind of an exciting change. I like that young, energetic aspect of the industry. So it's not just that delicious, traditional Pinot Noir. Now there's this kind of crazy party happening over here. And then, um, is the kind of the bigger um, players coming in and the more established producers kind of building more formal tasting rooms, kind of creating a more formal structure. I know that's something that a lot of people are a little bit prickly about and feel is destroying the industry, but I think those things can exist together. I think there's a lot of energy there. Um, and I teach in Washington too, and I see the role that Chateau Saint-Michel has for um, other producers and the way that they lift up everyone around them. So I think there's, I think that I like seeing those different levels that where the industry is happening, and I, that's exciting to me. But as you look ahead for Oregon, what uh, obviously the, the past couple of years have kind of been odd with the pandemic and, and, a, and a harvest of 2020 that was so difficult. Uh, what do you see the industry looking like in the coming years? What what are the things you're kind of uh, excited about, and are there any things that you're you're afraid of, fearful of in the future? Um, I think it's. I'm looking forward to seeing the vineyards get older. 
and see what happens with the wine as the vines get older and they adapt more to their site and we learn more like what are the best vineyard sites in the Willamette Valley. I think that story will be really interesting to follow. Uh, vineyards pushing maybe to cooler sites, higher up, closer to the coast, that will be exciting. More Southern Oregon and more Gorge. I think those areas are really exciting. Um, different grape varieties is a way for newer, younger winemakers to enter the scene and not compete with that traditional Pinot Noir story. Um, so I think that diversity will be exciting. But yeah, I don't, I think wine is always evolving and a lot of times people get stuck on the traditional aspects of wine and feel like it should never change. And that's not what wine does. Even in places like Bordeaux, they've seen huge change in their wine styles. Um, the grapes that they plant. So I am mostly just excited about what's gonna happen. I don't feel fearful, but I also don't have any skin in the game, so it's easy <laughs> for me to look at it from that point of view. Uh, not just for Oregon specifically, but uh, in general, uh, what are the, you mentioned wine not being static and not, not, not standing still. What are the trends you've seen in your time as a wine educator that, are, that have sort of changed the wine scene in, in, in general? I love how, um, I mean, and I say this about, but I love to actually drink, I'm like a very traditional wine drinker, like, and I want to pull out a cork, and I want to drink my, you know, very traditional old school wines, but that said, I love the energy of the wine in cans, and the alternative formats, and the non-traditional blends, and making something sparkling that wouldn't normally be sparkling, so, and I would say I see it reflected in the, my classes, where when I was in, a student in a wine class in New York, it was people that wanted to know how to properly open a wine with a corkscrew and um, you know how many months to cellar their wine before they open it. And my students now come in and they don't, they are not caught up in those rules around how to drink wine, they just wanna explore. So that willingness to just explore wine as a beverage, that there's no intimidation around wine anymore is what I'm seeing where I think Wine education when I started was, um, these are all the rules you're supposed to follow to drink wine, which was something I never wanted to teach. And so we did, that was something we kind of made a decision we weren't gonna teach. And now um, people wouldn't expect to get that in a wine class. So I think there's just a joy that people approach wine with now where I used to see students walk into a classroom with fear, like they just were there because they wanted to not do things that were wrong. And now my younger students like, well, why would I be intimidated by wine? And I love that. I think that's a really positive change. I think that's great for the wine industry. So you're just bringing in new drinkers. You talked a little bit about the sort of the future for yourself already, and, and the kind of the growth the growth you're on. Are there there are there things you're looking forward to? Are there additions or changes or new new topics or new courses you're excited about? Or is it just kind of growth of, of numbers that, that you're seeing in the future? Um, I think I want to maybe, I want to continue to figure out how to support the diploma students and maybe additional programming that could help them in that level of study. Um, for me personally, the opportunity to kind of add the Friday night on wine classes has just allowed me to explore topics that I don't normally get to teach about in the course of my certification classes. So I can do a class on Croatia or Georgia and wine where those were things I didn't have a space for before. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, for me personally, has been really excited, exciting. But for the school itself, I think the focus will be on um, now that we have this diploma program, how do we continue to support those students and what they need beyond the diploma program, whether they've graduated or while they're in the course of their studies. And just for our sake, can you give us an idea of what a WSET 4 diploma student does uh, to, to, to pass? What, what, what are the expectations and what is the sort of the, the, the time? My first thought was crying, lots of crying, <laughs> um, hair pulling. It's 500 hours of study. So most of them are going to have to find at least 10 hours a week to study, which is a lot. Um, and then the way that it's laid out um, is they, they take it thankfully in units. So you're responsible for a parcel of information as you go along and you start with viticulture and winemaking, which our students tend to be a little bit 
um, more suited to because we're around it. Mm -hmm. So we kind of get that through osmosis. And then wine business. So those two courses are just a written exam. I shouldn't say just a written exam because it's quite a, quite a challenging written exam um, that they do in person under timed conditions. And then they start to get into the, um, the wine specific module. So the way I like to offer it backwards because I think it's an easier approach where we do sparkling and then you do a unit on fortified. And that is a paper um, where you're writing essays and also blind tasting three wines. Um, and and they're, hard, they're hard flights. Um, my heart sank a little bit when I saw the sparkling wine flight this year. Um, and then after that, and what my students are starting this weekend is the wines of the world, which is everything they haven't studied yet. And um, at the end, they will have a two-day exam, which is um, uh, several, several essays. I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's five essays. Um, and then a blind tasting of 12 wines. Um, where they have to assess the wine, write a quality statement, suitability for age, and then justification about what they think it is or what they think it is in relationship to the other wines. Um, and then there is a research paper that they do on top of that. So it's a, it's a beastly program and um, yeah, I, th <laughs> I think that um, it, it, takes just, it takes a lot of stamina and a lot of determination to, to get in to get through the program. Where do you see your role being then? As you mentioned you're not just obviously not just a teacher, you're a therapist, and you're. How do you see your role evolving as you have more students who are trying to get to that level? I want to make sure that they are getting the content they're expecting in the course. But I think one of the things I really don't want is someone to not pass the test because they don't understand what's expected. So I try to work with them outside the classroom, and this is something that's been great about online education because we do this online, but. Um, working on practice exams with them, working on practice tastings with them, um, because the, the content is one thing, and they kind of, we can help with that to some extent, but they kind of have to figure that out themselves, but I don't want anyone to fail because they know the content but don't know how to present it on the test. And WSET is very specific about what they want, but luckily they're also very specific and then they tell you what they want. So I help students interpret <laughs> WSET because I kind of understand the WSET language. And I hope I give them the tools they need so that if they know the content, they can come in and deliver it in the right format and kind of get through to the next step. That's quite an undertaking for, for teachers and teacher and students. That's, that's a lot. It's a lot, yeah, it's a lot. Obviously, you uh, you took kind of an interesting path yourself into the industry and kind of created your own your own niche. Uh, if if someone were to ask you about your advice on entering the Oregon excuse me, the Oregon wine industry, what would you tell them? Um, well, it's a I mean I think it's a great it's a great place to be, and I always say like I got into this business for the wine, but really stay for the people because when people are working in the wine industry, they're so happy to be there. Nobody stumbles into the wine industry. You set yourself on a path to do it. Um, so I would recommend people do it. I think one of the things I see in the Willamette Valley is there's so many small players who get in because they want to make their wine. And so if you can find a role for people where you're supporting them in that mission, whether you're helping them with their marketing or their accounting or their education, if you can find a, a niche for yourself where you take your skills and go to these wineries and say, I can do these things for you, I think you could be, that would be a very successful business model. I think it's a people industry, so um, this wasn't the way I did, this wasn't the way that I did things, but I think a great way to get into the wine industry is to get out there and meet people. Um, volunteer at wineries, work at wineries. I think a lot of times people don't realize that wineries are desperate for your help in the tasting room. And if you are a smart person who can talk to people, there is a tasting room job out there for you. And it's a great way to just get your foot in the door and start working. And I think a lot of people in positions up here started at that in that spot and they were around and somebody grabbed you and scooped you up. So that's, the, that's the kind of the experiential side, and, and you're obviously you offer the educational side. I'm, I'm curious uh, in the years you've been doing this, and as the people you've worked with, have you 
have you found an advantage or disadvantage to doing it a certain way? Or are people all kind of finding their own paths about getting into the industry and working their way up? Yeah, I think, uh, no, there's not one way to do it. I think sometimes I do have students that um, call me up and they want to sign up for levels one, two, and three at the same time, you know? And I try to slow them down and because, I mean, I can't say enough wonderful things about the WSET classes and everybody please come and sign up for a class. But in, you don't need it for the job. In a lot of cases, it's something people do to be better at their job and because they love wine so much. So come do level one um, and then absorb that information, take it home, use it, try it out, get a job in a tasting room, come back in a few months, do level two, take a good six months off between level two and level three and take your time with it so you can really absorb it and, and use it. I think, you know, some people come to me when they already are the head winemaker at a huge Oregon winery. They're already successful. They come because they want to understand wine better. And some people come because they're trying to get their foot in the door. So they want that that they want to come in confidently knowing they know something about the world of wine. And I think you can do it either way. Um, I don't think you have to do the wine class first, but I find a lot of times once people are working in the Willamette Valley for a while, they want to because they love the wines here, but they want to put them in context for themselves and for their customers. And um, WSET lets you taste all the major wine styles of the world. You know, those are all selected and laid out for you, and you can see everything really that's out that's out there. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? I don't think so. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your stories and your and your candor. We really appreciate this, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. All right, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.